0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi everyone. Welcome to your podcast, New Books in Economic and Business History. I'm your host, Javier Mejia from Stanford University. And today I have the great pleasure to be with Dan Slater and Joe Wong. Dan is Professor of Political Science and Emerging Democracies and Director of the Wazer Center for Emerging Democracies at the University of Michigan. Joe is Professor of Innovation at the Hmong School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. He's a professor in the Department of Political Science, and he also serves as the Vice President International for the University of Toronto. I'm very happy to be with uh, the two of you. How are you, Dan, Joe? Good. Doing well. good thanks, thanks, Javier. Yeah.
0: Thanks for having us.
1: Let me start asking you about your lives and your careers. We're going to be talking about your new book. Your new book is called From Development to Democracy, The Transformations of Modern Asia. Um, I had a great time reading it. But again, before that, I would like to hear more about your your life. Um, and let me start asking you, Dan, about you. Where are you from? How did you ended up being interested in political science in Southeast Asia? I understand is your expertise. How did that happen to be?
2: That's a good question. So um, I spent a lot of my youth in uh, in California, and you know, so I've always sort of been kind of drawn to to the Pacific and to to Asia. And so when I was an undergrad and started getting interested in uh, in kind of international politics, international political economy, you know, it was the nineteen nineties, and Asia was booming. So it seemed like where you know, if you were into interesting questions of economic development, it was the place that people were uh, were studying. Um, and actually, my, my mom was a, uh, a Berkeley uh, political science undergraduate. So I get that from uh, from uh, my mom's side of the family.
1: What about you, Joe? What's, what's your story?
0: Well, I, uh, I grew up in Toronto, um, Canada. And um, I think for me, my interest in East Asian politics really um, solidified in the wake of the June 4th Tiananmen um, demonstrations, and then the crackdown. And I recall, I was in high school at the time, and I recall uh, some of the dissidents who were able to make their way out of China were actually speaking at uh, our local university, the University of Toronto, which may have been the first time I'd actually ever stepped foot on a university campus, actually. But I went to it, and I was riveted. And um, it was something that um, obviously had a huge impact on me. And soon thereafter, when I started college, I went to McGill University in in Montreal for my undergrad before I went to the US for my PhD. And um, at McGill, I started studying political science and um, uh, also did uh, a lot of courses in East Asian society, Chinese literature, Chinese drama, and so forth. And so developed a deep interest. Uh, in Northeast Asia. And so when I started my PhD soon after in 1995 um, at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, I'd originally gone thinking I was going to study Chinese politics, um, which was a real emerging field at the time. But equally emerging at the time was the study of rapidly industrializing economies and countries in the region, places like Taiwan and south korea inspired by a lot of earlier work on japan and its post-war economic and political miracles and so i quickly um became occupied with that part of the region and ended up writing a doctoral thesis comparing taiwan and south korea so that's kind of how i got into
2: uh, that part of the world yeah it's like we kind of have both I was going to say both, both similar, but also opposite trajectories in the sense that like I, too, for me, it was kind of witnessing the I was in uh, in Malaysia in 1998 uh, when the big protest movement emerged there and the big crackdown there. And that's a big part of why I wound up um, you know, looking at questions of democracy and authoritarianism. But before that was really what I was looking at political economy. So it's kind of interesting that these these the way I think for, for Joe and I, we wound up really being drawn to both of those topics in the you know Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia, but not necessarily in the same sequence.
0: Yeah, you got to no, remember, remember too, right? I'm so, sort of happy. I mean, but like back in the 90s, um, the literature on the developmental state, you know, I think starting with people like, really with people like um, Theta Paul, bringing the state back in, Alice Amston looking at South Korea, Robert Wade in Taiwan, and of course, Peter Evans's work on embedded autonomy and Steph Haggard. I mean, it was a huge literature. And at the time, as well, you recall there was the Hopkins series on democracy, right? And there was just a just, you know, it seemed like there was constant stream of great work being done on democratization in both Northeast and Southeast Asia during the 1990s when both Dan and I uh, were uh, were in grad school. And so, it, you know, I, I felt like this was a great opportunity to be contributing to that really emergent literature at the time.
1: I think it's, it's fascinating that you bring up like both things, right? Like the influence of like reality and, and the influence of just the evolution of academia. I was talking to Yuho Wang recently and asked him the same question. He What he said was uh, that he decided to study political science when he was a kid and he saw Tiananmen happening and he saw... The army just passing by. He was a kid, apparently, and like that event, um, just drew his attention towards political uh, phenomena. So it's very interesting to see how um, similar things are are behind your your motivations. But I, w- I want to ask you a bit more about the environment, the intellectual environment, in which um, you you decided to get involved in East Asia, right? So Joe just mentioned that there was a bit of uh, apparently a boom. Um, but how much or how many resources were there if you were uh, a young scholar or a grad student? You were interested in East Asia back then.
0: Well, I mean, for me, I mean, you know, you really had to you had to go into the field, and um, this was an extraordinary opportunity for that generation of scholars who were being trained at the time, because you know we were being trained um in both increasingly quantitative methods and so we were drawn to the sorts of data that were available or as was the case not available um and you know so we had to you know we had to actually spend time in the field we actually had to live in the places that we were doing research in and um you know so for me it meant uh in terms of scholarly resources, it meant, you know, being in Taiwan for almost a year and then being in South Korea for another half year or so. Uh, and the resources that were available to us in terms of research resources were, were really there on the ground. And so, you know, I spent a lot of time going through the archives, spent a lot of time at the national libraries looking through earlier doctoral thesis and so forth, master's thesis as well to get some good data. Um, and interviewing lots of people uh, in both places for my doctoral thesis anyway. So, you know, it was a time where I think it, the the region was just exploding in terms of interest, um, but the literature was still pretty uh, in its infancy. And so you really had to be there um, and you really had to spend time there. And I know Dan is well-traveled as well and, and, and brings to his work a real kind of ethnographic instinct too, which I think is reflective of the time he spent in the field.
2: Yeah. So Javier, so you asked about resources. So I definitely feel like I have to make a plug for, for public institutions because, you know, for me, the you know, I went to the University of Wisconsin as an undergraduate, you know, the same place Joe went for his PhD. And if I hadn't gone to Wisconsin, I don't think I would have had the opportunity to study Indonesian language. Then um, I actually did so in my master's program as well, at the University of Washington. So the nice thing for me was by the time I got to my um, PhD program, Uh, in Emory in 1999, I'd already, you know, had been taking Indonesian for, for quite some time and I'd had a Fulbright fellowship, another, another form of public funding. So I got to spend 1998 in Malaysia on a Fulbright fellowship. So, um, by the time, you know, I got to encounter these questions in political science and these methods, like, well, do you want to use quantitative methods? Like, how do you want to approach these things? You know, I'd already spent a lot of time in the field and I already had my language skills. And so I just had a level of, of preparation thanks to those kind of resources being available to me uh, beforehand. And then I was then, you know, and then thankfully some, some private institutions have a lot of money, too, because at Emory, they were able to fund, you know, I was able to do pre-dissertation fieldwork every summer, um, basically could do as much fieldwork as I wanted to as a grad student, which was really, really extraordinary. So um, got a lot of bad ideas out of the way, um, you know. Bad ideas, partial ideas, and kind of wound up, uh, wound up, where I wound up. But it took a lot of, a lot of time in the field and in the library, you know, and in workshops and bouncing ideas around before you know things wound up where they where they did. At least for my for my dissertation.
1: I love from this conversation how we see that for a specific piece of research to be done, there's so many things behind, right? So many people and resources behind that. I, I, I love like that reflection and, but let's get to the book, right? What's the outcome of these years of preparation um, and, and collaboration? And I'd like to start with your, I guess, uh, theoretical contribution. Your book is very interesting because it's not just the uh, historical analysis of the region, but you have a, a point to, to make, right? You have a theoretical point And it refers to what you call democracy through strength. So how about if you help me here going through that concept and what's your your argument in the book? Um, Let me ask Joe for, for this. What's democracy through strength?
0: Well, in a nutshell, the argument is that strong autocratic regimes, if incentivized and if they are confident, Um, then strong autocratic regimes may in fact initiate, or as we say, concede democracy. And this is in many ways responding to a sort of prevailing conventional wisdom that democracy is most likely to emerge from the ashes of a collapsed regime, right? So we oftentimes look for democratic beginnings in uh, regimes that are wavering or have just been toppled. And for me anyway, um, as I thought about this in the context of Taiwan, it always struck me that here was a regime, the KMT authoritarian regime, which by every measure was a brutal dictatorship through the 1970s and 1980s. And yet in 1986, when an opposition party forms technically illegally because taiwan was still under martial law we would have expected the regime to crack down with Mm -hmm. the iron fist that it had deployed in all other previous instances of any kind of opposition emerging and what we actually see in 1986 is the ruling party the kmt allowing the formation of the dpp and in fact lifting martial law a year later and then setting into motion the wheels for a stable democratic transition. In other words, this was a democracy which has proven to be robust and stable, uh, where we see regular turnovers of power. I mean, we're all we, we're, we're all the measures of a resilient and enduring democracy ought to be. Here's a democracy that emerged not from a regime that collapsed, but actually a regime that was really strong. And I thought about that for a long time. Um, in fact, in two thousand and six. Ed Friedman, who was my professor at Wisconsin and Dan's professor when he was an undergrad and to whom we uh, dedicate this book, he and I uh, tossed around this idea of democracy and dominant party systems, this notion of learning to lose. And, you know, I hadn't really thought about it at the time, but what we were interested in was – stable democracies in which there is a dominant ruling party and what happens when that dominant ruling party loses for the first time but what we were actually really getting at or i think what had set into motion my own mind was here was a democracy in which the dominant democratic elected party ruling party was in fact the former authoritarian party and as i say this was something that was just kind of running through my mind and then i met dan and he had just written a terrific paper on strong state democratization in Southeast Asia. And, uh, which I read of course, and we had an opportunity to meet and that's, that's when we started putting some of these ideas together. So that's how I arrived at it. I don't, Dan, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I've never asked you how you arrived at, um, how you started thinking about similar things.
2: Hmm. Well, I think for me, the, I guess where, where we kind of came together was just me thinking about Singapore and Malaysia. Um, and in the first book that I wrote, you know, basically, I tried to explain why Singapore and Malaysia were such durable authoritarian regimes. Um, but basically, what my first book did was explain why those regimes had the capacity to stay authoritarian and, and avoid reform. But that didn't really speak to the question of their incentives. Um, and it just sort of seemed to me as I was in Singapore that, yes, I mean, this, you can't just overthrow the PAP, but that doesn't mean the PAP is not going to decide that it's going to rule in a new direction. And I think what really struck me was, you know, you don't you don't have to come up with some wild counterfactuals about, well, what would happen if these strong states in Southeast Asia democratized? Just look at Northeast Asia. I mean, why wouldn't if Singapore and Malaysia did what Taiwan and Korea did and what Japan did and just basically, you know, conservative dominant parties opening up and holding elections, they're going to win them and they're going to stay in power and things aren't going to get destabilized. So. That was sort of the point that i was making in that the paper that joe referenced and then that became a natural way to then think about okay well then why would they do why do they do this what what, you know why have malaysia and singapore not done this why did taiwan and south korea do it um and then we brought indonesia into the conversation where you know again i mean we look at indonesia and we tend to see it through the lenses of again democracy means a dictator collapses you know as a dictatorship gets weaker it, it to democracy like that's the way we think about these things right like is the regime going to collapse is the regime going to collapse how often do we hear these things right but I think what we find in these you know developing countries of Asia these rapidly developing countries in Asia is that when the regimes get weaker they don't collapse when they get we get weaker they solve their t- internal problems they use forces necessary to stay in power and they only seem willing to countenance reform when they're pretty unified and pretty confident that things will go well so I think the biggest you asked about the theory. I think the most fundamental theoretical corrective here from our minds is that, you know, probably the most important book of the of the millennium so far on democratization, or the most influential ones, by Osmoogu and Robinson, right? And they say, you know, revolutionary threat is the key. Like you get democracy when you have a revolutionary threat, and we are saying that is exa- in at least the part of the world we look at, it's exactly wrong in the sense that uh, it's it's not the the threat of revolution; it's the expectations of stability. Um, That will actually, you know, lead these regimes to open up the process. It's not that they have little choice. it's They they face little risk. Um, And so these ideas aren't totally missing from the literature, but no other work, I think, has gone so far as to say that not just the regimes will liberalize and not just that they will negotiate their exit from power, but they will actually, you know, full on democratize more than liberalize but not necessarily exit power. They can stay in power by winning these elections and, and do so while remaining unified. They don't have to splinter. They don't have to be weakened. They can be in a very strong position and do this. And they've really thrived after doing so. So hopefully the idea is that other authoritarian regimes can look at this and say that, you know, when you're doing well and when you're you know at your height of popularity and when you have a strong track record and when you're unified, that's a good time to try to open up the process because if you wait, and you try to open up the process when you're weaker you're more fragmented, the opposition is more, you know, more, you know, motivated by the repression you've been using, things are going to tend to go a lot worse. And so, um, and not, just, not the, just for the, you
0: know, not just for the incumbent regime, but you know, that these relatively stable democratic transitions were also not disruptive to their developmental trajectories, right? So, um, the, yeah. an argument can be made that democracy through strength as a stable way of democratizing, avoiding the kind of rockiness that we might see in other uh, transitioning regimes, that that actually creates the conditions in which we see continued prosperity and continued development. And you know, Dan and I have written uh, a chapter that appeared in a book <coughs> edited by Jamie Loxton and Scott Mainwaring in which we talk about the ways in which these successor parties, then these incumbent uh, authoritarian turned democratic successor parties continue to steer these political economies in relatively prosperous ways and in you know in some cases even you know fostering more inclusive and more stable economic growth over time. So um, as we as we go to great lengths to say in the book, it's 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 a it's a book about democratic transition, but it's it's also a book about development and the development right. that precedes and the development that can continue after democratic transition has occurred
2: yeah and
1: have
2: i think i want to on development javier just to, to kind of come sure this is sort of a big theme of your, of your podcast is that you know i think we just reject the idea that regime type explains development you know the idea that well look at asia authoritarianism led to development you know i mean democracies can have terrible developmental records authoritarian regimes can have have good ones or terrible ones um, and it's really about the state institutions, the party institutions that kind of oversee, you know, economic development. And the point is, you democratize those party. The party doesn't go away. The state doesn't go away. And so the same party and state that have overseen rapid, successful economic development can keep doing so under democracy as well.
1: Yeah. So I'm I'm pretty curious actually about that um, part of your book, and and I would, would like to hear more about. Um your perspective on the development, the role of the political system, generally speaking. But before that, I would like to ask you why do you think that our conventional view on democratization is the one that departs from collapse? Because that surprised me a bit as someone outside from the literature um, that what you said had like made a lot of sense. It was like pretty logical and it was based on pretty important uh, historical events, but it was probably the first time that I had heard of it. And is it because this type of uh, transitions to democracy are a more recent phenomenon, or is it because the discipline is to focus on the European experience and that seemed to just happen to be different, or how do you yeah. think about, about this?
2: Yeah, I think the Eurocentrism is a big part of it. I think that um, the literature that, that Joe is referencing, like the Hopkins series and all this literature on democratization, what people call transitology, all this look at transitions, you know, third wave of democracy starts in 1974. So you have all this work in the 80s and 90s, and it's just overwhelmingly focused on Latin America and Eastern Europe and Southern Europe. And basically, those were all cases where you either had military regimes that were, in fact, negotiating these exits from power, um, or in Eastern Europe, these, you know, these communist parties began negotiating their exit from power, Um, regimes splitting in, you know, places like, you know, Portugal, places, you know, throughout Latin America. So these were just the cases they had. And what was happening in Asia, people just weren't, weren't looking. Um, and it happened a little bit later. So I think that by the time this tra- transitions literature had gotten its, you know, really gotten going, you know, if, if, you know, or even think about it in Latin America, if Mexico had democratized the way it did before, say, Brazil did the way it did, I think the literature would look very different because Mexico democratized very much the kind of way that we talk about, you know, the pre sort of opened things up, expecting to keep doing well, and they did keep doing well, you know, independent election commission, all that through the 1990s. Um, And so they were able to democratize without conceding uh, defeat. Um, But by the time that happens, you know, first of all, it's gradual. um, And you know, there's a literature on things like pacts, you know, so again, but a pact is different from what we're talking about. A pact is one in which the government sits down with the opposition says, okay, let's make a deal. Um, And basically they hand over power, but they get certain safeguards in place. These are regimes that don't, they don't, they don't, they don't negotiate it and they don't hand over power. They do these things on their own terms and they can keep winning elections. And again, we might think temperamentally like, well, that's not democracy, but you know, look at again, look at Taiwan, look at South Korea, you know, these are, you know, it, it's, we're not saying it's always the best way to, for a democracy to strengthen, but it certainly is one viable path. And I think, especially in an age when, you know, there's so much pessimism about democracy in the world that finding more paths is, you know, that at least sometimes could work out. Uh, those are worth thinking more about and, and worth understanding the conditions that make them possible look at a place like China right now, it, it, it's not just a question of, will the regime collapse? Will the regime collapse? Will the regime collapse? Ask, will the regime reform? Like, under what conditions will the regime say, you know what? There, there, there are problems we face that we might be able to solve with certain kinds of reforms that make the system less centralized, less uh, personalized, um, less, you know, um, monopolized by one, one ruling group. Other places have solved problems that way. China could too. I also think I
0: mean, going back to the 90s when we first started thinking about this and the sort of the genealogy of the literature, you know, the other big event, of course, was the collapse of the Soviet Union, which shaped a lot of our thinking about maybe not democratic transition, but certainly the prospects of political reform. And so, you know, at that particular moment, I think that there was a real, you know, political transitions was within the specter of this really spectacular collapse. And indeed, you know, our colleagues in China will often refer to um, the Soviet collapse. And as an example of, of why uh, democracy and democratic transition is something that's, um, you know, not desired because, um, you know, because what we saw there was the, essential obsolescence of, uh, or the what became the obsolescence of the former Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Now, that being said, you know, there are terrific scholars like Stanford's very own Anna GB, who, you know, has, Anna GB, who's written uh, extensively on different pathways of democratic transition and democratization and the ways in which, you um, the usable past uh, of an incumbent regime, or the the remnants of an incumbent regime, can be usefully deployed in order to create more stable democratic transitions. So that's the first response. The second, I think, as well, you know, when we think about East Asia, uh, especially Northeast Asia, at that time, it really was thought to be within the context of the American. Um, imperium, I guess is what Peter Katzenstein once referred to it as. And so I think a lot of people discounted what were really pretty extraordinary domestic developments, um, internal developments, you know, with respect to political change and transition in Taiwan and South Korea, and even going all the way back to post-war Japan as essentially American creations. And that these cases, to the extent that they had anything interesting to offer, uh, were really reducible to examples of democratic transition through external imposition uh, and external pressure. And And Dan and I recognize, of course, in the book, and when you read it, I mean, I think there are really pretty rich empirical sections that describe the way in which American influence was important. But determinative to the point where there's no need to theorize this, we dismiss uh, entirely. We, there, you know, there are lots of things going on within these cases that warrant um, theorizing. Um, so, if you look, for instance, we begin the book with the case of post-war Japan, and that was a very conscious decision because actually, as we Uh, very clearly state, it's not exactly our best case of democracy through strength. That would be Taiwan. That's the second empirical chapter. But we begin with Japan in part to, you know, take a hard case, uh, and a hard case in the sense that Japan's democracy is understood to really be an externally imposed political project. Um, And what we argue, actually, is that uh, notwithstanding – obviously a very omnipresent uh, occupation and so forth, that conservatives within Japan and a conservative political elite within Japan and a party structure that had actually predated the World War and emerged under the period of taisho democracy in the 20s and 30s, the institutional legacies of those plus the passing through of Japanese conservatives actually made this an interesting case of democracy through strength, where conservatives found that democracy was actually incentive compatible. It made sense for them. It actually served their interests. And so while, of course, the American presence uh, was extremely important, we don't want to discount that at all. But there was also a real incentive alignment for Japanese conservatives to essentially embrace democracy as a way not of conceding power, but frankly as a way of them preserving their hold on power. And we see, of course, this solidifying after 1955 and the formation of the Liberal Democratic Party, which then becomes in many ways the model that the rest of the region Um, uh, takes inspiration from. So, you know, again, going when we think about this historiographically, right? I mean, I, you know, there is a, there is a sense in the eighties and nineties that democracy is really just a function of American imposition. And what we're doing in this book is recognizing American influence, but also theorizing what's happening within these cases in the region.
1: Let me ask you something a bit about, like, in those lines regarding the, I guess, the organic forces of, of East Asian societies, and and it's about how particular they are. So you make the case that it's not true that these places are, at any level, prompt to autocracies, and that that whole idea that Confucianism and so on wouldn't like be a good argument for describing why these places would be more friendly with authoritarian regimes is, is not accurate. Um, but is there something about East Asia that make these societies more prompt to this type of uh, transitions to democracy? Is there something in these places that structurally prefer from Europe or Latin America, where uh, democratization through collapses seems to be not so frequent, how do you think about that the East Asian singularity and how does that relate to to democracy through through strength?
2: Yeah, I mean, East Asia is singular. You know, I mean, it's uh, you know one thing that we you know talked a lot about is I mean, you know, because people say, well, what's your you know external validity and Oh, we should talk about, you know, again, I mentioned Mexico and Ghana and Spain, people like, you know, people raise these other examples. But I do think that the, what this region we call developmental Asia, I do think it's experience is singular. And I think that the vital point is that what really defines the region is this obsession with economic development. And I think that anything that tries to explain, you know, these kind of big, you know, shifts in, in regime types or understand why that we see the unevenness we do, you know, why, you know, we see some places democratize others don't. The story has to start from development. And these are just, these are governments and these are conservative elites with a lot of power and a lot of state strength behind them who simply are not going to do anything in terms of the political regime if it's going to disrupt development. Um, And I think that's why when, you know, these places have been, if they've been on the verge of collapse or, you know, we, you know, if you look at, you know, Korea 1960, or you look at Thailand in 1973, or, you know, these are times when, you know, these regimes did kind of collapse. They were really weak authoritarian regimes and it gets reversed that the, you know, the military comes back and then they try to like, no, it's actually strengthen the, the, the political system and then democratize from that position because that will be better for economic development. So I think that just the level of obsessiveness with development in this region does make it singular, um, in such a way that, um, Democracy through weakness becomes more you know, unacceptable, and you know as the title of the book suggests, you know the sequence is really vital. You know none of these places, with twelve cases, none of these places said, "Oh, let's try democracy, see how that works for development." These are twelve cases that all, you know, said the first thing we got to do is economically develop, and then down the road we might deal with these dilemmas over, well, do you democratize, do you not? But development comes first. Um, unlike say, you know, India, where again you start with democracy and then let's see how it goes for development. Um, so I do think, um, the book is, I mean, the book is half about economic development and any book about this set of cases, I think almost has to be just because of just how unbelievably important it is to the, the political and the economic elites in these settings, who's have a lot of power to, to, to drive things the way that they want to.
0: Yeah. And I just said, it's, it's, it's not just an obsession. With development, but it's also relative success. I mean, they're successfully um, uh, developmental economies, more or less, and certainly on balance. And the cases that we demonstrate to be the most likely to pursue democracy through strength and a stable democratic transition through the means that which we describe are the ones that are part of the developmental status cluster, which also happen to be, you know, um, not just obsessed with development, but very successful with it as well.
1: Let me ask you about that because I mean I I began my career studying economics and back then East Asia was the reference for pretty much the entire world and every developing country wanted to be like South Korea and eventually like China. And I had the impression that governments had actually a embraced those ideals fairly closely but they were not as successful and i'm thinking about places like Latin america and i guess sub-saharan africa what what was the case what did what were the political conditions and these places when these developmental endeavors were um were happening that allow this to happen. And of course, I don't expect you to give me a pretty profound argument on, on development, but I would like to know how the, what was the uh, the view of governments during this period, how did, did they have doubts that this specific development model, because it's also a certain type of development model, right? Like one based on capital and, and so on. Um, were there doubts and among these elites? Were some disputes around this? What what was happening from a political perspective that made these uh, models of development successful eventually?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I'll I'll take a start. And again, this is this is a question that has been the subject of uh, a, a good a good many books and articles and World Bank reports and uh, and so forth. But I mean, at the core, um, what you have are strong and capable institutions. And uh, a central variable in our story and our theory as well is strong and capable political parties that are organizationally coherent, um, uh, ideally national in scope and so forth. Um, I think one of the things when you look at the developmental statist cluster, which is one of the four clusters that we focus on, you see early on land reform uh, that essentially breaks the landlord class it provides for the state apparatus more autonomy and uh, less uh, fewer constraints on its ability to lead industrial transformation and so forth and so you know i think really it comes down to the kinds of institutions and the strong institutions that are in place these are also the the most successful economies and, and we're quite clear about this are market-regarding economies as well, right, economies that are trading economies, economies that are open to foreign investment, foreign direct investment, um, and so on. And so, again, the developmental status cluster, which is, you know, our most um, paradigmatic example of development and democracy are ones that were all, um, you know, that that all embraced market-regarding economic policies even though they ran very strategic industrial policies,
2: they were, they were market regarding economies as well. Yeah. And I think that the, I would really put a lot of emphasis on the geopolitical competition. Um, I think it's a very, very big part of it. And uh so again, that, that kind of that, that motivation is there. Um, but then I think it's really a regional effect. I mean, we really make the case that this is, this is a region of 12 countries that you know, transcends Northeast and Southeast Asia, where there's all this kind of shared sort of mentality and sort of vision of how to, how to develop. And it really, really begins with Japan and begins with the Meiji Restoration. Uh, it begins with Japan becoming the first kind of developmental state outside the European world. Um, and for driven for reasons like a lot like European economic development, also driven by geopolitical competition, you know, to a large degree. Um, but but the key point here is that with Japan taking the lead, and then with certainly relying on American markets as well, um, you know, and just like export led growth, it's just there's just a lot of money. There's a lot of investment. And what's really kind of amazing to me is that the, the real laggards in the region, so the late comers to developmental Asia, whether we're talking about Cambodia or Myanmar or even China, it's really not that hard, right? If you just kind of open things up and if you sort of allow for investment and you make the political commitment to kind of tap into this Asian, you know, wildfire of economic development, to be frank, um, that you're going to grow fast, you know? Um, and that's you, you don't have that option in Latin America or Sub-Saharan Africa. It's just you're in a different region. You're not in a region that is booming and where just in just insane from a historical perspective and a comparative perspective, just levels of investment, levels of trade, levels of you know interdependence. Um, so just it's such a hothouse, um, which you know kind of arises from this confluence, as we say, of on the one hand, it's so it's the major restoration, you know, it's, it's what Japan does, but it's also, you know, Britain coming and with, with kind of open door policy, forcing these economies open and sort of, you know, there's, there's a, the developmental Britannia cluster and, you know, Hong Kong, Singapore, and Malaysia. Um, so this kind of the way that the US and Japan and Britain kind of combine to, you know, through a lot of force, but create this, you know, this, this region of, you know, of just remarkable economic development. Um, which China then comes too late. And that's a big corrective we want to offer in the book is that people tend to look at Asia and they think, okay, so it's Sinocentric, like starts with China, go for China and read and it's just not. It just isn't. I mean, the I mean China is not the leader of developmental Asia, it's a late comer to developmental Asia. And it could it could become a leader eventually, but it's it, it was very late to the game. Um, And is largely tried to develop in, in, you know, again, it's a different cluster. There are different institutions. There's a developmental socialist variant of this. So it's not like it's just replicating what Japan did by any stretch. But it's really important to realize that, you know, it came to the came to the game late. And one reason China has been able to boom is because China is where China is. You do the exact same economic policies in you know, a different region, it's not going to generate those kinds of that kind of that kind of growth. Um, and-, and China's benefited from being part
0: of just an amazing neighborhood, right? <laughs> like it's got just amazing neighbors. And when you look at the early stages of foreign direct investment into China after the late 1970s, the largest investors were East Asian investors. Taiwan via Hong Kong, Japan, and so forth. And so, um, you yeah, know, China is a, a latecomer here, certainly not the lead uh, Certainly not the lead, and certainly not the leader in the, the lead goose and the flying goose formulation that people have talked about, or flying geese formulation people have talked about as a way of structuring the region and so forth. It very much is a latecomer that's benefited from an extraordinary neighborhood.
1: Let me ask you about that, because uh, we've been talking about the... Um particularities of the region as a whole, but there's plenty of heterogeneity and you think about this carefully through this idea of clusters. Why don't you tell me a bit more about what these clusters make reference to and how we should understand a bit this heterogeneity within the region. And let me probably ask you Dan to begin with this.
2: Sure, so just to be just be very descriptive with it for starters. So the argument is that, that there's a region we call developmental Asia which has enough shared features to be considered a region, um, but that these 12 cases in Northeast and Southeast Asia, we divide into four different clusters. And so they're different developmental clusters, they've had different kind of varieties of economic growth, economic development strategies, and, and vitally they've been grounded in different kinds of political organizations. So different kinds of political organizations that have presided over the, the, these booms. So you have the developmental status cluster, which is Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan. And here again, you know, Joe talked about the land reform, talked about some very strong bureaucracies, um, you know, that that have presided over these these booms. Then you have the developmental Britannia cluster, uh, Hong Kong, Singapore and Malaysia, much stronger legal institutions, um, you know, know, more dependent on inward uh, foreign direct investment than the developmental status cluster. And so right off the bat, these six cases all are, you know, modernization theory would predict they would all be democracies. Right. But the fact that only the status cluster is and the developmental Britannia cluster is not suggests there's something about the cluster. There's something about those political organizations, something about the geopolitical um, dimensions, because, again, these these more British linked cases are not as tied to the U.S., which I think, again, matters for Japan, South Korea, Taiwan. And so those are the stronger two clusters, which vary right in ways that defy modernization theory. Right, they they support it in some ways, but defy it in, in in others. And the same is true at the at the among the weaker cases. So the more intermediate two clusters. So one is the developmental militarist cluster, which is Indonesia, Thailand, and Myanmar, um, and all three of these cases have experimented with democratic reforms. And then you have the democratic social, excuse me, the developmental socialist cluster: China, Cambodia, Vietnam, all of which have have pursued what we call democracy avoidance. They've avoided democratic reforms. Again, from relatively similar levels of development. So levels of development don't tell you whether or not you're gonna democratize. Um, The the clusters, these kind of horizontal differences, if you will, um, seem more determinative. And so again, the simplest way to think about it is just what are the key organizations? The developmental military's cluster, it's clear the military, like the military plays a big role. The developmental socialist cluster, clearly, it's these socialist parties playing a very, very big role, which differentiates it in a, in a substantial way from these more bureaucracy-led and these more um, you know, strong legal system um, institutions from the other two clusters. So there are really these four different sets. There's a nice parallelism in it in the sense there's like three of each um, that gives you the twelve, and then the fact that six from two of the clusters have pursued you know these democratic experiments. Um, some of them have been reversed. Thailand, Myanmar have reversed them. Um, and the other six, have not, kind of just gives it just an interesting kind of structural setup and, and puzzle to the, you know, to the book.
0: And, and also, again, within each cluster, just the, the variation in terms of the levels of economic development, I think, are important here. So just to reiterate that the level of economic development itself does not predict, uh, as modernization theory would suggest, Uh, taken very crudely but you know as that that sort of school of thought would suggest that the level of economic development itself um, doesn't entirely predict whether society will undergo transition because as we can see there are some poorer economies uh, and societies within a particular region and, and richer ones and so on
1: let me bring one final topic that i want us to talk about, which is um, how current events um, are are just happening and how they fit into your your theory. And I want to ask you about the case of China and the recent events, which it's going like just a few weeks ago, it seemed that the regime was strengthening at every like possible level, but just a week ago, we started to see some protests and then things were probably a bit less uh, or more weak than what we thought. Um, so it seems to be changing probably more rapidly than what probably you had in mind when you started writing about this. Um, and the other one is the case of uh, Myanmar, which uh, probably you were able to address some of the recent events uh, while writing the book. but but still, it seems like something ongoing. So how do you think about these events? Uh, do you think that they are supporting your theory? Is like, uh, Your theory is useful to see how these things are playing out um, in the ground? Do you have concerns? Do you think that you would need to write another book because of this? I, I want to hear how you have experienced, both like intellectually and at a personal level, the, the evolution of the region um, uh, recently. Well, let me...
0: Let me say a, a couple words about China, and I know Dan will have lots to say about too, and of course the situation is um, is is very dynamic. I mean, one of the things that we've always stressed when we've talked to colleagues and friends in China is that, you know, our theory is a theory uh, of democratization, but one that does not presuppose the collapse of the regime. And... You know, interestingly, this has meant then that our theory of democratic transition has been one that people inside China will listen to and take seriously, right? Because essentially, the argument is is that here is the Chinese Communist Party that has essentially overseen and engineered the most remarkable transformation in human history in terms of development, right? And so, here is a regime that um, should have the confidence both what we call victory confidence as well as stability confidence to, um, to contemplate a democracy through strength kind of scenario. And, um, but there's all, there's a little bit of a cautionary, um, note to that as well, which is to say, if you wait too long, um, then, uh, things can become much less stable and things can become, uh, much more disastrous. And so, you know, when, um, thinkers inside China look at the former Soviet Union, they will often say, as I noted before, that that's a perfect example of why an autocratic regime should not loosen its grip on power, because chaos ensues, and the regime eventually collapses, and um, and the country falls apart, or in that case, the empire falls apart. And this is something that would be, of course, disastrous for Chinese officials. But what we say is that's actually not the right lesson that you should be taking from that. The lesson you should be taking from the case of the former Soviet Union is that this was an autocratic regime that waited too long. Uh, That when perestroika and glasnost are unleashed, it in turn unleashes uh, and exposes the political ferment and rot that had been there for a long time. And the regime. Does explode, but what it's showing is that actually there is a best before date that you ought to democratize from strength when you're strong, and therefore sooner rather than later. So, in thinking about China today, um, you know one can make a reasonable argument, certainly to those who are willing to listen inside China, that you might want to think about the prospects of a democratic through or democracy through strength scenario when the regime is is strong and is popular, and is seen as legitimate, and is seen as having delivered um, economic development in China, having a credible track record, not unlike we saw with other autocratic regimes in the region that successfully democratized through strength. What it also means then is, and then I'll turn to Dan, is that when, you know, as we think about democracy promotion, um, what it suggests is that there is a way in which we can have a conversation with Chinese leaders and Chinese activists and Chinese political thought leaders about the prospects of democracy without demonizing the regime. That uh, we don't necessarily have to look for collapse scenarios. That in fact, you know, if you are uh, if 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 you are a proponent of more democracy in China, it does not require or presuppose an a priori collapse of the regime. That you can actually talk about. Uh, a democratic reform when the regime uh, is in power, when it's strong and when it should be confident. So it's a different kind of engagement that I think actually places less emphasis on demonizing the regime and actually engaging with the regime in a way that suggests to it that democracy may actually be the best for not only the regime, but for also China as a whole.
2: Yeah, I guess I'd, I'd open with one, I think, really vital clarification. Um, That we try to make in the book, but probably we should hammer it home a lot more often Which is that the strength of the regime is not the same thing as the strength of the pressures that it's under Okay, so How strong a regime is is built over time. It's built over a very long period of time. It's a historical matter Okay, and just because pressures suddenly arise whether they be social pressures or there's an economic crisis or there's new geopolitical pressure on case it doesn't mean the regime is weak It just means that it's under stronger pressures. And so everything we said historically about the fact that China was a relatively weak regime in 1989, and part of the reason why they cracked down in Tiananmen is because the regime is weak, because they... In comparison to say south korea taiwan they're much less confident and rightly so that they could actually concede democratic reforms and 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 thrive as the kmt did and as the conservatives did in south korea so our story of the, you can you can gauge the, the, the strength or weakness of a regime by looking at the regime not just looking at the pressures. And that's a historical question. And we would totally stand by the story that this is, the CCP has gotten much, much stronger since 1989, much, much stronger. And yes, you know, pressures can arise, but it doesn't mean what we've seen in the last weeks is not that this, this it doesn't mean the CCP is weaker than we thought. It means that there's more, you know, pressure for, there's more dissatisfaction with, or, you know, Kind of pressure for an an ability to generate pressure from society than we had seen you know before before that. There's an ability for it to um, sort of coagulate, if you will, into kind of a national level protest. And I mean, we've seen protests throughout you know recent decades in China. Lots of protests. It just hasn't been national. And and whether that's what happens now, we'll see. But the point is that all of the lessons of the book, the historical lessons of the book, don't go away because there are protests. It doesn't mean the regime was weak. Um, you asked about Myanmar as well. I mean, that's the real, I think, the biggest tragedy of the, that we have. And in some ways, it's predictable and in some ways not. It's predictable in the sense that it's, by, it's, again, from a historical perspective, you can show, it's not hard to show, this is the weakest regime in the bunch. It's the most likely one to revert. It was the most likely one to reverse the democratic experiment. And we can explain why very, very clearly. But that doesn't mean it's what had to happen. In reality, what I think Myanmar shows is that even from a relatively weak position, a very kind of intermediate position of strength, you can see these democratic reforms, and things can go very, very well in terms of economic growth, stability. Um, all in all, I mean, Myanmar had, you know, Myanmar has a very tortured post-colonial history, which followed a very tortured colonial and pre-colonial history, but the past decade has been arguably the best, you know, decade for Myanmar that it, that it has had. Um, and that was under, again, much more, you know, civilian authority, civilian rule. And so the fact that the, 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 the military in Myanmar decided to reverse it and decided to, to get rid of the, the experiment is really, I think, just, it's just an enormous tragedy. And, and again, this is, this is what you get when you study, you know, dictators and you study militaries. When they want to do the wrong thing, if they want to, t- they can do it. Um, you know, agency does exist when you have that kind of concentrated power, or in the case of the, the military in Myanmar, if you have the armaments. And so, you know, as a result, there's, you know, theory hits its limits. You know, and we can say that agency matters, but that doesn't mean we can predict what agents are going to do in a in a precise way. And and in that respect, I think our book has a lot to a lot to say. But you know, history will surprise you.
1: Yeah, I mean. You wrote a fascinating book, and it's gonna um, probably open a uh, huge discussion around these events as uh, they unfold. But um, I had a great time reading the book. I I really want to thank you for writing the book. It was something that I think we needed to to have. And I also want to thank you for taking the time to to chat with uh, with us. Um, I look forward to talk to you more about this
0: great thank you so much appreciate it yeah i really appreciate it thanks